Let's read uh, Proverbs chapter 9, and then we'll pray. Proverbs chapter 9, starting in verse 1. Wisdom has built her house. She has carved out her seven pillars. She has prepared her meat. She has mixed her wine. She has also set her table. She has set out, sent out her female servants. She calls out from the highest points of the city. Whoever is inexperienced, enter here. To the one who lacks sense, she says, Come, eat my bread, drink the wine I have mixed. Leave inexperience behind, and you will live. Pursue the way of understanding. The one who corrects a mocker will bring dishonor on himself. The one who rebukes a wicked man will get hurt. Don't rebuke a mocker, or he will hate you. Rebuke a wise man, and he will love you. Instruct a wise man, and he will be wiser still. Teach a righteous man, and he will learn more. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. For by wisdom your days will be many, and years will be added to your life. If you are wise, you are wise for your own benefit. If you mock, you alone will bear the consequences. The woman folly is rowdy. She is gullible and knows nothing. She sits by the doorway of her house, on the seat at the highest point of the city, calling to those who pass by, who go straight ahead on their paths. Whoever is inexperienced, enter here. To the one who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten secretly is tasty. But he doesn't know that the departed spirits are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. Let's pray. Father, once again, we thank you for your love and your care for us. Thank you for the book of Proverbs, this wisdom literature. As we consider uh, the contrast between wisdom and folly, that you might open our hearts, not just to the differences between the two, but in our own lives where we may be exhibiting some of this foolishness, this folly, so that we might submit ourselves to you for the changes that are necessary that we can walk in wisdom and honor and glorify you. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. Okay, so tonight, the contrast between wisdom and folly. So we're going to start, of course, with wisdom because that's where Proverbs 9 starts. And um, you're going to see once again where both wisdom and folly are presented, uh, personalized in the form of a woman. And uh, she is uh, looking for those that will follow her. So she starts out in, for wisdom in verses 1 and 2, presenting her provision. Uh, first of all, notice the permanence of her dwelling. It says she has built her house. She has hewn out her seven pillars. Uh, the word hewn in the English, in the uh, Hebrew, basically the same concept where there's some carving uh, that's done. Now, normally when you think of a home that has carved pillars or carved archways, uh, this is fancy work. Uh, we'll see the difference a little bit later on when we're looking at folly that she's not really saying, hey, come to this beautiful maintained home as much as, hey, come on over here. Uh, so uh, there's some uh, real permanence in her dwelling. Let me read a couple of verses dealing with, uh, of course, the church. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock, now the word Peter there is pebble, it's a small rock. On this rock, the word for rock there is boulder, uh, that concept. On this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. So when we consider the assembly of uh, Jesus or the church as it's uh, presented here, we're, we're in Matthew 16. When does the church start? In Acts chapter 2. So as he's speaking to these Jewish people, they understand the concept of assembly, and that's the word used, an assembly of called out ones. Who are the called out ones in the Old Testament? Israel. And so we read into the church, and he may very well have been speaking about the church, because uh, understanding what God understands Cool, he knows what's going to happen. Israel's going to ultimately reject him, kill him, and he's going to go with the parentheses program of the church. 
Uh, but this verse in the ears of the uh, disciples probably wasn't thinking church. But it still is this concept of it's going to be built on this solid foundation and hell or the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. There's permanence there. Ephesians 2, 20 and 20, uh, through 22, obviously Paul writing to a church about the universal church. Uh, is having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom the whole building being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. I've always found it interesting, both this verse and the next one, 1 Peter 2, 5. Let me read that one for you. You also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Uh, we like going to uh, John 14. Uh, my, in my Father's house there are many dwelling places. I'm going to prepare a place for you. Uh, and if I prepare a place for you, I will come again, receive you unto myself, that where I am you might be also. Uh, we, we recognize that He's gone to prepare a dwelling place for us. And in the meantime, what is he doing? He's preparing us as an eternal dwelling place. Because when you get to the book of Revelation, the celestial city is called the bride. It's kind of like, okay, you know, I like this individual person type stuff. I'm not sure I want to be a stone. But it's a spiritual concept uh, that has permanence, that has uh, an eternal view. And so when wisdom is talking about her dwelling place, it is uh, a house that's been built, special carved pillars uh, that are part of it. And then, of course, it moves on to the meal offered. In uh, Matthew 22, 3 and 4, it says, And they sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding, and they were not willing to come. Again, he sent out other servants saying, Tell those who were invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fatted cattle are killed, and all things are ready. Come to the wedding. And of course, this is a parable dealing with the concept that Israel has been invited and they didn't want to come. Uh, thankfully, when we get to the book of Revelation, uh, somewhere around chapter 19, uh, the angels are sent forth with the invitation, come! And Israel finally does come. They get to be a part of that wedding uh, wedding and wedding feast between Christ and the church. So the meal offered, she has slaughtered her meat. She has mixed her wine. She has also furnished her table. Now, I don't know about you, but Thanksgiving is coming up. And very often when we consider Thanksgiving, normally there's a family gathering. There is a well-prepared meal, more than enough food usually. Uh, you've got your turkey. Some people like ham. I don't understand it, but that's okay. Whatever melts your butter. You've got your stuffing. You've got your mashed potatoes. You've got your uh, salad maybe. We always had an antipasto uh, when uh, I was growing up. I have no idea why we're not Italian, <laughs> but we always liked it. Uh, but uh, you, you've got, who knows, maybe you've got boiled onions. Maybe you've got uh, some carrots in there. Uh, who knows what other kind of vegetables you might have. The green beans with the little uh, fried onions on top. A lot of people like that stuff. Uh, if they're fresh green beans or frozen, I like them. If they're canned, you can have them. <laughs> and then, of course, after that, you have pumpkin pie. You might have some apple pie. We always had minced meat. I never understood it. I, I had one bite and it's going, oh, no, thank you. Um, a lemon meringue. I, I'm not a lemon person, but, you know, it's a favorite. Uh, so you can just see this meal laid out. And, and here she has uh, meat. Now, I don't know about you, but there's a place over in St. Charles called Tucano's. It's a Brazilian restaurant. And yes, it costs a lot of money. And yes, you might be a little gluttonous for one night. We'll let it pass. Uh, but they have the, uh, the salad bar. They have the sushi and the shrimp and all kinds of stuff on one side, salad on the other. And then on this side, they have all kinds of Brazilian norm, uh, normal foods. You've got uh, 
uh, fried uh, collard greens with bacon and onions. You've got farofa, which is basically sawdust. Um, it's not sawdust, but that's what it tastes like to me. Uh, you got fried bananas, you got cheese bread, things, um, you know, rice, and they also have some spaghetti and uh, mashed potatoes, which Brazilians do eat, but spaghetti's a Sunday meal, you know. But uh, then they bring out the meat on the spits, and they, and they slice off small portions of it for you, and you can sit there and eat meat Longer than you probably ought to. Uh, I normally get a salad and a lot of jalapeno peppers, fresh jalapeno peppers. I bring them back, and as they give me meat, I will eat a little bit of meat and a jalapeno pepper uh, with every bite. Uh, it's wonderful. Uh, I like meat. I know we're trying to get away from meat, and we want to eat bugs in our society today, or something is generated in a lab somewhere. <sighs> Can I tell you, it just doesn't taste the same. I haven't tasted it, no plan on tasting it, but it does not taste the same. Uh, and that's the idea here. She's got a meal set forth. Uh, now, again, in the Middle East, back in the day, wine would be a, a normal accompanying, accompanying drink. It's not the idea. You know, culturally, the U.S., when it comes to drinking, why do we drink? In the U.S., we drink to get drunk, okay? Uh, in Germany, teenagers will have beer with their pizza. It's like drinking Coke for them. And it's not because they've drunk so much of it that it doesn't bother them. It's they're not given to the excess that we are. So when we see, ooh, wine at the table, eh, you know, calm down. Uh, this is not a lot different than drinking water or something else at the table for a lot of these people. And then, of course, uh, she has furnished her table. Everything that you desire at a good meal would be there. So that brings us to her universal invitation in verses 3 uh, through 6. First of all, we see multiple means of invitation. She has sent out her maidens, and she cries out from the highest places of the city. Now, last week in uh, Proverbs 8, verses 1 and 2, we saw, Does not wisdom cry out, and understanding lift up her voice? She takes her stand on the top of the high hill beside the way where the paths meet. So again, the idea here is this is a visible place, a place where people are passing by. They're going to hear it. But uh, notice she has sent out her maidens in Romans 10, 15. And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. I don't know about you, but since I have been saved, I have always loved telling people about Jesus Christ. Now, I recognize that uh, we get self-involved in that thing, and there's all kinds of reasons to be fearful and things like that. The reality is, is, I have eternal life in me. And when I'm walking with Jesus, it just kind of bubbles out. It might be through a song that's going through my head. It might be joy in my heart. But ultimately, all of that is to display a life that gives credence to a message. And we're looking for those possible opportunities where we share as much as we can about who Jesus Christ is and what he's done for us. Uh, because the gospel is, remember what it, the word gospel means? Good news. Now, personally, I'm not a foot guy. So God says the feet are beautiful. I'm not sure he's talking literally as much as it's a beautiful thing that people are out there sharing the gospel with other people. Uh, we'll run with that one because as I look at feet, I have flat feet. Uh, you know, I've got bone spurs in my heels. And it's kind of, yeah, just not a beautiful part of my body. You know, look at my quad, <laughs> that kind of a thing. Okay, moving right along. Uh, multiple invitees in Matthew 11 25, it says, And at that time Jesus answered and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the prudent and have revealed them to babes. Uh, I was sharing with someone this morning. Years ago, I was going through Arthur W. Pink's book, uh, I believe it's called The Nature of God, small three-page uh, chapters. And it dealt with not only the attributes of God, but 
various theological truths about God. And I dealt with that in family devotions. Lynn got upset with me because, you know, Hannah's seven years old and she can't understand the decrees of God. You know, we, we really need to get something that's more down on their uh, understanding level. And it's kind of like, okay. But uh, the last chapter we did was the decrees of God. Now, the decrees of God are one of those things where uh, adult theologians go, uh, you know, it's kind of, okay, did he decree this and that? And wh- what part do we play in it? All that kind of stuff. But um, basically in this small little chapter, my seven-year-old daughter at the time, Hannah, she, she's a lot older than that now. Uh, <laughs> the next day I opened the refrigerator door and you ever have that time when you open the refrigerator door and something falls out, smashes on the floor, you got to clean the whole thing up and you're immediate response is, oh, praise the Lord, hallelujah. No, it's usually, you grumble about one thing or another. And uh, Hannah sat there and said, but daddy, God decreed it. At which point, what can you say? Because the book said, you don't know what God's decrees are unless he reveals them or unless they happen. If it happened, God decreed it. At which point, you just have to pick up the mess and move on. Uh, So a whole point being is uh, kids can get a whole lot more than you might think. So notice it says here, whoever is simple, let him turn in here. Again, the concept of simple is he's usually young and inexperienced in the issues of life. Uh, I've just finished uh, premarital counseling with a couple that'll be getting married in a couple of weeks. And uh, let's just say they're a little bit more mature, okay? Uh, When you're dealing with young people, they've got those rose-colored glasses on. We just love each other and everything's going to be wonderful. And you're sitting there going, yeah, you are so clueless, you know? You're simple. You're inexperienced, uh, young and inexperienced in the issues of life. But the issues of life are coming. And when they come... All of this stuff that we've talked about, you're going to have to go back and look at this book because you're going to need it, okay? Uh, So that's the idea of the simple ones. Whosoever is simple, let him turn in here. And as for him who lacks understanding, she says to him, and we'll get into what she says in a moment, Proverbs 6.32, whoever commits adultery with a woman lacks understanding. Now, that's not the person that I want anybody to be like, but notice she's even inviting him. Okay? If anyone lacks understanding, uh, she says to him. So here's the invitation. And when you think of the invitation, you might think about that meal again that she's been offering. Uh, We start out with the appetizer. Come, eat of my bread. Uh, Proverbs 9.2 You might remember she says she has prepared her meat. She has also mixed her wine. She has also set uh, her table. (coughs) Excuse me. Uh, In a lot of places, well, if you go to a normal restaurant, uh, go down here to (laughs) Longhorn is not a normal restaurant, but uh, whether it be Longhorn or Texas Roadhouse or whatever, uh, very often the first thing they're going to bring out is bread. It's kind of like the appetizer, okay? And so we see here the appetizer, come and eat my bread and drink the wine that I have mixed. Again, remembering that wine in other cultures, different concept of thought there. So it's not we're getting anybody drunk. It's just part of, in fact, um, you might remember Tiago and Gabi or Gabriel um, from Brazil. Their mom's, no, their dad's dad every now and again, stays with them. And every evening, he will sit down and he will eat some bread and drink a little bit of wine. He's an Italian from the old country, moved over to Brazil, and this is just one of the things that they do. They sit down and have a little bit of bread and a little bit of wine, very common, both in Europe and the Middle East. So she's offering this as an appetizer. Let me read a couple of verses. Uh, Song of Solomon 5.1. 
the beloved is speaking. I have come to my garden, my sister, my spouse. I have gathered my myrrh with my spice. I have eaten my honeycomb with my honey. I have drunk my wine with my milk. And then to his friends, he says, eat, O friends, drink. Yes, drink deeply, O beloved ones. Isaiah 55, 1, ho, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Yes, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. And then John 6, 27, do not labor for food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has sent, set his seal on him. So again, though she's using the concept of bread, wine, she's dealing more with the information, the uh, knowledge of the Lord that uh, wisdom can give a person. So that brings us to the encouragement uh, of this relationship. Forsake foolishness and live and go in the way of understanding. You might remember she invited the person that lacked understanding. Now go in the way of understanding. Forsake foolishness and live, both the one that lacks understanding as well as the simple. A child is born with his heart bound up with foolishness. It's the rod of correction that drives it far from them and that kind of thing. But again, forsake foolishness and live. If you're here on Wednesday nights as we're going through the green letters, um, some of the concepts that uh, he is trying to teach is, you know, when you really understand what God says about you as far as your position in Christ uh, and stop living according to your emotions based on your condition uh, because you still have the law of sin in your members, you start believing God for what he says about himself, about you, and then before you know it, Temptation itself is not the way it used to be. Before, it was a battle as to, I want to please God, but boy, I really like that kind of thing. And now the same temptation comes along and it's kind of like, yeah, I don't even need to do that. There's a, such a change in the inner person that it's not like it used to be. And so forsaking foolishness and live, we can say it this way, live and forsake foolishness, okay? Both of those kind of uh, go together. That brings us to number three, dealing with the invitees. The scoffer or the wicked, well, th those are two that haven't necessarily been invited, but they probably hear something. They might see how the simple or the one that lacks understanding responds, and they might uh, inject themselves into the situation. Matthew 7, 6, do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under feet and turn and tear you in pieces. You know, the one verse that uh, probably the whole of the United States and some other countries knows is Matthew 7, 1. Judge not, lest ye be judged. The funny thing is, is he's basically saying, judge righteously. He goes on to say, with the same measure that you judge, that's the measure you're going to be judged. He says, therefore, take the two by four out of your own eye before you worry about the speck of dust in your brother's eye. Now, why would you be worried about the speck of dust in your brother's eye if you've got a two by four in your own? Well, you know, I recognize that I'm not living up to par, so if I can judge him about his stuff, I'm going to feel a little bit better about me. That, that's the concept there. And he's saying, deal with your own monkeys first, is basically what he's saying there. And then he goes on to say in uh, verse uh, 6 here, don't cast your pearls before swine. Now, what do you have to do to determine that someone falls into the category of swine? You have to make a judgment. Now, you have to make a, a righteous judgment, and therefore... For example, if you're ever witnessing to someone and they want to get into the doctrine of election but they're not saved, probably don't want to waste your time with the doctrine of election, okay? Uh, very often, that is Satan's way of derailing the conversation, getting it onto something that has absolutely nothing to do with the price of beans in China. Uh, another one is 
Well, my, my grandmother died, and she was a very religious person. The best thing you can say about that situation, because they're asking you, is she in heaven or in hell? Well, what kind of church did she go to? Well, they label the church kind of like, yeah, <laughs> chances are she, no, you better not say that, <laughs> okay? Uh, you sit there and say, look, you and I, none of us can know what happened in her heart between her and God. So there's not a thing we can know for certain about that situation. What we can deal with is us here and now. So again, um, so that brings us back to the scoffer or the wicked. He who corrects a scoffer gets shame for himself. Now, why would that be the case? Because chances are the scoffer is going to be like that um, swine that is going to turn around and attack you with whatever the conversation may involve, and you're going to look like the fool in the end. It uh, goes on, and he who rebukes a wicked man only harms himself. You might remember in Second Corinthians chapter 8, I believe it is, it talks about godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Very often, if you uh, catch a person with worldly sorrow in a sin and you confront them, they are going to show forth anger, okay? Because they, they're not really sorry for what they did. They're sorry that they got caught, okay? And therefore, you become uh, the target of that anger. Uh, now, sometimes they may show that worldly sorrow through feeling sorry for themselves or something like that. And if you were to call them on that, that well, it's your fault that I feel this way. <clears throat> so the whole point being is uh, right here, and he who rebukes a wicked man only harms himself. And of course, the last one, do not correct a scoffer lest he hate you. Uh, you might remember a couple of presidents back. Well, actually, the last three presidents, if they were ever called on anything, they usually demonstrated a certain amount of anger I'm sure they would say it was righteous indignation. Uh, but you will not be correcting me because you're false news or fake news or something like that. Um, but uh, yeah, Barack Obama and Biden, they, they pretty much respond the same way when it comes to someone calling them on something. And unfortunately, Trump wasn't a whole lot better. Now, many times when they were calling him on wasn't true, but still, uh, how do you win that argument? Not by turning and attacking. That's ultimately foolishness. So that brings us to letter B, the wise man. A couple of verses here. Let the righteous strike me, it shall be a kindness. And let him rebuke me, it shall be as excellent oil. Let my head not refuse it, for still my prayer is against the deeds of the wicked. And then Matthew thirteen twelve, Whoever has... For whoever has, to him more will be given, and he will have abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away. Now, how does this fit in? Well, look at what it says about the wise man. Rebuke a wise man, and he will love you. Now, I'll be honest with you. These verses in here, as well as a couple of others in uh, Proverbs, definitely hit me in a place where you know, when people are correcting you or rebuking you because you've done something wrong, it is time to listen. Otherwise, you're the scorner, the scoffer, the mocker. And that's not where a believer wants to be. So rebuke a wise man and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man and he will be still wiser. Teach a just man and he will increase in learning. Uh, one of the ways that this has uh, worked out in my life as I've gotten older with the Lord is I am much more willing to listen to people that in past times I would have sat there and said, you're not believing the right doctrine, so don't want to listen to you anymore. I am a little bit not open to changing my doctrinal views, but open to listening to hear where that person is coming from, not for the p point of giving them... Uh, why they're wrong as much as, okay, how are they seeing this? Where are we on the same page so that we can talk about the subject? 
if you've noticed in our country as a whole, and this is in the church also, if uh, you're not saying the same thing that I am, you are the enemy. Um, I don't know how many of you may have seen, but a uh, woman by the name of Kat Von D recently made a profession of faith, going to church, singing in the choir. She got, uh, got baptized. And uh, she's a tattoo artist, and she's covered with tattoos. She was also involved in the occult. Uh, after her profession of faith, she got rid of a lot of that junk in her home. And, um, you know, she's posting the videos because she's a celebrity. Now, I don't know how wise that is because I know very often when people thrust the celebrities to the forefront, somewhere in the rest they're going to fall on their face because we all do. But, of course, they're going to be judged that much greater. Well, uh, in the fact that she got baptized... A lot of people claiming to be Christians got on there and basically talked negatively about her because, well, she's got tattoos. She's got the black dyed hair like a goth person. It's kind of like, really? Now, I don't know if those people are saved or not, but I do know that the church does have a tendency to jump on things like that when, really, she got saved, I I think, okay? I don't know. I'm hoping she did. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. And time will tell, won't it? But in the meantime, should we be the ones on the negative side of that thing? I don't think so. Okay? Just saying. So teach a just man and he will increase in learning. Number four, rewards for the responsive invitee. Verses 10 through 12. First of all, a corrected relationship with the Lord. Notice I didn't say a correct one. I said corrected. And, and the reason is, is very often uh, in this day and age, and Tozer talks about this a little bit, where we, we get people to just accept Jesus as your personal Savior, and then, okay, I'm going to heaven, and I'm quote-unquote in this personal relationship, but I'm, I go to church, you know, I'm going to read my Bible once in a while, but I'm not really doing anything about this relationship that we say that we're in. Well, in Hebrews 11, uh, 6, it says, He that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he's the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. The concept of diligence is an intentional, intense, purpose-driven, you're you're looking for something. Uh, And then in... uh, 2 Peter 1, verse 5, it says, Therefore, we should diligently add to our faith goodness, knowledge, brotherly kindness, so on and so on and so forth. And it says in verse 8, If these things are yours and they're increasing, in other words, you're continuing to add to your faith, you're neither going to be fruitless, you're going to be fruitful and growing in the knowledge of God, And then in verse 9, it says, But if not, you're going to be nearsighted, blind, even forgetting the things that you've been cleansed from. And it's so easy to sit there and say, Well, that guy in verse 9, he's not saved. Well, I've been in Christianity long enough and in the ministry long enough to know that, no, unfortunately, that describes an awful lot of people in the church. And we're not talking about whether or not they're saved. We're talking about, are they doing anything about this personal relationship that they're in, or are they just going with the flow and see how things work out for them? So let's take a look at the rewards, a corrected relationship with the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Job twenty-eight twenty-eight, And to man he said, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to depart from evil is understanding. Psalm 111, verse 10, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all those who do his commandments. His praise endures forever. Proverbs 1, 7, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. So when we're talking about a corrected relationship with the Lord, the first thing we're dealing with is a reverence for God for who he is, and in so doing, we're acknowledging where we stand before God. You know, if it wasn't for the fact that God loved us and did a work in us, where would we all be? 
going back to that song that we introduced two weeks ago, if it were not for the Lord. You know, I, I shared a little bit about some of my past, and I can only imagine that if it were not for the Lord, jail, death, broken relationships, who knows, it, it would not have been good. I mean, it's been hard enough even being saved. Uh, thankfully, if it were not for the Lord, I could have messed that up too. So uh, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. One of the things I appreciate so much about the Tozer books that I'm reading is uh, he is constantly challenging the reader to move on in his knowledge of God. That's where that personal relationship starts to come to life. It's not just having the correct theological thoughts in your mind, but you're developing an understanding of who he is, what he's like, how he thinks, what my next step is based on that kind of a thing. So that brings us to the top of the next page. Long life and personal gain or loss is all a part of whether or not you'll respond properly here. Notice he goes, For by me your days will be multiplied, and the years of your life will be added to you. Now, of course, this is not the only place this is promised. Proverbs 3, 2, For length of days and long life and peace they will add to you. Chapter 3, verse 16, Length of days is in her right hand, and in her left hand, riches and honor. And then a chapter we haven't looked at yet, chapter 10, verse 27, the fear of the Lord prolongs days, but the years of the wicked shall be shortened. Ooh. Very often, of course, we look at people that live to a very great age that are wicked. It's kind of like, hey, hey God, you kind of missed one there. It's kind of like, wait a minute, God is merciful and gracious, and who knows if he isn't going to save that person at the last minute. Now, chances are not, when you look at statistics, younger people, a lot of them get saved. Older people, only a few. But who knows if they're not one of the few. Um, and then, of course, personal gain or loss. A couple of verses there, Job 35, 6 and 7. If you sin, what do you accomplish against God? That's the idea here, against Him. Or if, you trans, uh, if your transgressions are multiplied, what do you do to Him? If you are righteous, what do you give him? Or what does he receive from your hand? A whole concept there is you do not make God better or bigger or lessen him in any way based on your activity. Okay? So uh, it, he goes on to say, oh, well, let me read Proverbs sixteen twenty six. The person who labors, labors for himself, for his hungry mouth drives him on. Um, one of the reasons why in our benevolence ministry, uh, I always ask the question, why would I help you? And then I tell them, I'm going to give you two wrong answers so that you can use them. Number one, I'm a nice guy. Number two, you have a need. Those are wrong answers, so why would I help you? And they go, because I have a need. I go, see what I told you. You know, um, the reality is, is when we go to the Scripture, if a man won't work, he shouldn't eat. Okay, so why am I helping them? Some of them are not working, uh, but they have had jobs in the past. Uh, maybe they're on welfare presently. They have been paying their bill. You know, if they're making an effort to help themselves, I don't have a problem helping them. It's when they're making no effort. Very often when they're making no effort, They've got a $3,300 electric bill. Now, the electric company and the state are part of the problem there. But look, if you can not pay for 8 out of 12 months, well, chances are you're going to take advantage of that. At that point, it's kind of like, you know, you find $3,200, I'll help you with 100 You know what I know? They're not going to find $3,200, okay? <coughs> Excuse me. So if you're wise, you're wise for yourself. Uh, we have two young people here today, and of course the book of Proverbs is trying to encourage young people to get wisdom. Why? Because you will benefit. There's one place that every one of us can be selfish. Get wisdom. With all of your getting, get understanding. Why? Because you will benefit. Now it doesn't mean all your problems are going to go away, 
but you will benefit. It will make a difference in your life and usually for the better. But notice the next part. If you scoff, you will bear it alone. You know, very often we do save our children from some of the consequences that are really there to teach them. But ultimately, people get tired of rescuing the person that keeps on going back and doing the thing wrong. Uh, the reality is, is what is the reason for consequences? To teach. Uh, I think it's Proverbs 15 where it talks about the rebukes of life. You know, uh, I saw a video the other day, Halloween time, someone sets a bowl out on their front stoop full of candy. And the idea is you come up and you take a candy bar. Well, some kids come up and take the bowl. And as they're walking away, there's a little electric charge. It's a metal bowl. And, you know, they drop the bowl candy all over the place. No one stops to pick up the candy. They just take off. You know, if you had just taken one candy bar, that wouldn't have been an issue. So just saying, if you scoff, you will bear it alone. So that brings us to the second woman presented here, Folly. First of all, her character. Now, whenever you deal with the character of this woman, Folly, you have to recognize that this is a characteristic that you do find in some women. So some woman is going to think, I'm a misogynist and all. No, 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 no. Come back here, okay? If your character is like this, it may say something about you that you need to talk to God about, okay? Notice, first of all, uh, a foolish woman is clamorous. Uh, how is that demonstrated? Well, in Proverbs seven eleven, uh, a couple of chapters back, it says, she was loud and rebellious. Her feet would not stay at home. How many young ladies are loud and rebellious, and they can't stay at home? They've got to go to the mall. They've got to go over to Susie's house. They've got to do this. They've got to do that. They've... Um, the reality is, is very often as they're so caught up in all this stuff, when it's time to settle down, they don't. Okay, This is a character problem, but folly, the woman folly, is clamorous. Okay, She is simple, and she knows nothing. Now, the reality is, is if there is a foolish woman, she may be very intelligent. That doesn't mean she's not simple. It doesn't mean that, she's not, uh, that she knows nothing. Uh, because whenever we're dealing with the concept of intellect, we're not talking about the facts that you know. Most young people know more information when it comes to math or, or, or by the time they're 12 years old than most adults do even though they've graduated from school. Uh, why? Because they're inundated with knowledge of facts. But does that mean they know anything? And the reality is, is no. They really don't. And that's this woman folly. Her invitation in verses 14 and 15, For she sits at the door of her house, on the seat of the highest places in the city, to call those who pass by who go straightway on their way, or straight on their way. Now notice uh, Proverbs 9.3, she sent out her maidens, she cries out from the highest places of the city. So obviously Folly is looking to be, she does have a home. There's not any description of it, is there? There's no hewn pillars or anything like that, but she does have a home. And she does go to the same places where wisdom goes to invite those to follow her. So uh, in that way, one has to be careful of what they're getting out in those highways and byways, the, the places where interaction goes on. Uh, think about, well, I was mowing the lawn the other day out here, and I like to put on my headphones and listen to 89.3 or 91.5, and uh, Jan Markell came on, and she was talking to someone who had made a video about the history of Israel, and I'm pretty sure the guy was Jewish, but at the same time, he was a Christian. And uh, he was talking about how Israel became a nation and what the response of various countries, England and the U.S. especially, was. 
And the reality is, is there wasn't a whole lot of people in England that were really uh, excited about Israel having their own land. And uh, Roosevelt didn't want anything to do with it. Apparently, during World War II, they knew what was going on in Auschwitz and various other places. And Roosevelt's solution was, win the war, you'll save the Jews. They bombed just a couple of miles away and knew what was going on. They didn't bomb the rails, so they couldn't keep on bringing prisoners there. Why? Well, you know, we have this idea that America's always been on Israel's side, and it's kind of like, no, we... A lot of our presidents weren't. And then uh, Roosevelt dies and um, guy from Missouri. Truman, thank you. I, <laughs> it just kind of skipped to the other side of my brain there. Uh, he became president and he decided that he wanted to do whatever he could to help them as they became uh, a new nation. He was pro-Israel. Uh, whether or not he's a Christian, uh, you know, I can't say here nor there. Uh, but uh, he, as well as, oh, he, he looked at himself as a Cyrus, someone of another nation that was giving Israel what was good for them. Uh, it's kind of like, okay, uh, I'm not sure that Cyrus would be the guy I'd want to label, but uh, I understand the concept, okay? And then uh, a few years later, um, 67 war, Israel had done a great job, six days, bing, bang, bong, it's over with. And then 73, the Yom Kippur War, which is basically the same as timing right now, um, they were actually losing that war. And um, they, they looked to the United States, and Henry Kissinger, who happens to be a Jew, uh, said, let him bleed a little. Basically, yeah, we might help him, but you know, in the meantime, let him bleed. Don't really care. And it's kind of like, unfortunately, that is the mindset of many Jews that are in America. They do not care about Israel. Um, not of all Jews in America, just uh, some of the some of them. Um, Richard Nixon was an anti-Semite. But his mother had told him when he was a kid, someday you're going to have an opportunity to help Israel. And when you do, I want you to do everything you can for them. And Gilda, whoever was the prime minister at the time, yeah, her, uh, she, she called uh, Nixon directly because going through the channels didn't work. Like I say, Kissinger, let him bleed. And so she called uh, uh, Nixon directly and he remembered what his mother had told him, so he decided that he would do that because mom said so, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, so he got called his cabinet together and said, hey, guys, we need to give them anything that they need, at which point Henry Kissinger challenged him, and he said, fine, then give them twice as much and more. I'm like, whoa. <laughs> uh, so it's amazing how God worked that whole thing together. Uh, but while I'm listening to this, I am seeing that, you know, we Christians, not all Christians, but from our kind of camp, we're pro-Israel. We want to see Israel succeed. Not that we want to see Palestinians die. We might not have too much of a problem with Hamas, you know. <laughs> but uh, the reality is we, we want to see Israel succeed and ultimately have peace. We pray for the peace of Israel. Now, the, the reason why I bring all of this up is uh, when we come back to uh, foolishness, when you look at our leaders throughout history, wisdom and foolishness is calling out. They're in the same places, and our leadership has not always been as wise as we would like to think they've been. Oh, yeah, we... Part of winning World War I, part of winning World War II. Look at us. Aren't we a great nation? God has blessed us greatly. But many times our leadership has listened to folly instead of wisdom. Just saying. Okay, so 
Uh, notice her preferred audience in verse 16, uh, same as uh, 9-4, whoever is simple, let him turn in here. For as for him who lacks understanding, she says to him. So notice she says, whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And as for him who lacks understanding, she says to him, same exact wording there, okay? But here's what she's offering to them. Stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. Proverbs 20, verse 17 says, Bread gained by deceit is sweet to a man, but afterward his mouth will be filled with gravel. Now, in both cases, whether it be bread or water, the idea is you are not coming upon this appetizer. um, And bread and water, by the way, is not a good appetizer. Uh, bread and wine is much better. Um, but you're not coming upon this appetizer in the correct way. And you know, there's a certain amount of excitement that goes with sin. But then afterwards, you deal with the consequences. And that's why Proverbs 20, verse 17 is so important there. And that brings us to the end of her invitees in verse 18. A couple of verses, Proverbs 2, 18. For her house leads down to death and her paths to the dead. Proverbs 7, 27. Her house is the way to hell, descending to the chambers of death. And uh, Proverbs uh, 9, 18. But he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of hell. Again, the simple, the one that lacks understanding. They're young, they're inexperienced in the issues of life. They're being presented wisdom, folly. They're both being offering kind of the same thing. With wisdom, there is benefit. There is long life. There is uh, prosperity that comes with uh, wisdom. With foolishness, well, there's a, not a corrected relationship with God. There is uh, continued foolishness, and then there's the consequences thereof. Um, unfortunately, notice he does not know. He does not know. In uh, doing this premarital counseling with this couple, as I said earlier, they're a little bit more mature. Uh, They're not wearing the rose-colored glasses that so often young people are wearing when you're doing the premarital counseling with them. They just love one another and nothing will ever go wrong. Um, This couple, they've got some experience. They, They understand that it takes work and they've laid a good foundation for their relationship. And I told him today, because we were in our last session, I said, look, you've laid a good foundation. You keep on working with that foundation, and even when there is conflict, you can work through it. For young people, ah, we've never had an argument. There's never going to be conflict. Okay. You don't know. Uh, They're still inexperienced. And unfortunately, for some Uh, levels of choosing folly instead of wisdom, it is one of those things where it leads people not just to the grave in a physical sense, but to the uh, ultimate destruction of their souls. So choose wisdom. Father, thank you for your wonderful love, your uh, compassion, your mercy. Thank you that you have provided wisdom in Jesus Christ. I would ask, Lord, that as your children, that you would open our hearts and our minds, uh, our eyes to the truth of your word, where it fits in our day-to-day living. And, Father, that we might choose wisdom and uh, develop this relationship that we have with you uh, by the power of your Spirit. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.